Well, it is, uh, it's great to be with you, good to be here, and um, it's nice actually to have a, have a build-up to Christmas. This time last year, Anna and I were uh, still in the States and just getting ready to leave, but we were still there. And one of the last things actually that we did before we left to come back here was we went to a Christmas party at, at one of our professor's homes. He has a party every year for his students, and it's right at the end of the semester, so it's really the coldest time of year in Ohio. And so we thought, well, this would be a nice thing to do. We went along, and we drove about an hour to get there. Finally get to this place, way out in the, in the suburbs of Cincinnati there. And everything was going really well. We, we had a nice meal together, and there were all these students we were catching up, and sort of saying our goodbyes, really, because we were off after that. And after dinner, he, the professor comes around with these uh, song sheets, and, and hands out these Christmas song sheets to us all. And I was thinking, okay, this will be interesting. What's going on? We're going to have a nice little Christmas sing-song here. This will be fun, all right? And then as the conversation in the room carries on, it becomes apparent that this is not a little Christmas sing-song in his lounge, that in fact we're going caroling. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and, and I also found out even worse than that, everyone else knew this in advance except me. And, and he had emailed this out, and Anna knew about it, but she had deliberately not told me because she knew I wouldn't come. <laughs> if I knew, which is true, I wouldn't have come. But there I was. So now I have this, this song sheet in my hand, and you know, everyone's sort of amping up to go outside and go caroling. And you know, you have this idealized image of what caroling might be like, maybe. You know, just people standing around snug, singing happy little carols. It's nothing like that. I'm it was, for starters, it was freezing. Fre like, literally freezing. Pretty much zero degrees outside. There'd just been a fresh dump of snow. So, it's nice to look at, but man, after a couple of minutes, you feel like the jeans you've, you've got on are just wet. You know, like wearing a wet pair of jeans. Just that icy, clinging to your skin, just shaking, like the hypothermic carol singers, you know. <laughs> it was just nasty. And because the snow was so thick on the ground, you have trouble seeing where the pathways and driveways are up to people's homes. So we got up to one doorstep and realized that we'd just traipsed right across this guy's nicely manicured garden to get to his doorstep. So I was like, Merry Christmas, guess what you need? <laughs> guess what you're gonna be asking Santa for? Yeah, it was hopeless. And we, we couldn't sing either. Um, we were just, I mean, well, speak for myself, I couldn't sing at all. So there was one time we were standing in front of this guy's house and we were, sing, we were singing Jingle Bells or something, we got to the end, and we're all holding the one horse open sleigh, and you hear behind you, like slightly off key, they're a bar behind us, and you're just looking at these people thinking, I'm sorry we are torturing you like this. I'm sorry that this is happening to you. We're inflicting this pain and misery upon you. It was really, it was really quite nasty. And a third house I remember was one, we got our timing really wrong too, because we came around just as all the little kids had gone to bed. So, well, what was the point in that? And, and this one father opened his door there and this look of complete disappointment on his face. And he just said, oh, I've just put my kids to bed. I've just gone through all this effort and you guys have shown up. And it was like slightly awkward, you know. And then we see the little boy coming down the stairs. Oh, he'd gotten up, he'd gotten out of bed and now he's down. And then the dad's look just turns from disappointment to annoyance. You know, it's like, oh, oh, gee, oh okay, all right, hurry up, you know. No time for one carol, make it quick, you know. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you. So, so I am not cut out to be a Christmas caroler, and uh, I'm not too disappointed about the fact that that tradition has not really caught on here. 
But uh, anyway, it is nice to be home for the build-up. And it's about the Christmas season, isn't it? You know, the build-up, not just Christmas Day. You don't want to pin it all on just the day. You've got to enjoy the whole ride through December. It's great stuff. It's funny how um, at Christmas time, a lot of the impression that I think Christians want to promote of Christmas is a really, often a really sanitized version of the Christmas story. We want to think it's all nice Christmas carols and a really pretty little picture of what it was like. And even you think about the way that we present the, the family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, you know, on our Christmas cards, with our little manger displays, all these kinds of things. We fight so hard to have Christ remembered at Christmas time, but often the version that we want to promote is, is a really sort of tidy little clean-cut thing that's not that much like what you actually read in the Gospels, you know. We want to think it's a picture of this nice family huddled in a, in a manger, which looks more like a birth care suite, with Jesus there, with a little, little halo maybe, glowing, and you know, like the, some of the carols don't help, you know, when, when Luther wrote that Away in a Manger carol, and he writes lines like, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. What's with that? Why, why do we think that Jesus wasn't crying? I imagine he was bawling his eyes out, you know, he's living, sleeping in a bunch of hay, you know, it's not very nice. So these kind of things, we just package it up and we present a version that's just all nice and tidy. And as you really get into the Gospels and you read the birth narratives, you, you, you meet a story that's really not that tidy at all. It's not that clean cut. It's pretty messy. It's pretty ugly. It's quite scandalous, actually. There's a lot of um, shame involved and a lot of just relational strain and even political problems and all kinds of things. It's really the story, you know, as you, as you see in that video, of, of a frightened little teenage girl named Mary, this girl from just a rural nothing village, just in every way, just a, a nobody, just an average girl, Jewish girl from a rural village named Nazareth, who was just, you know, getting on with life and then finds out she's pregnant. And again, we want to dress this all up and, hey, fantastic, Mary, you know, and there's this, this angel visits her and that's fantastic. But you have to remember, man, I don't know how many people would have believed the angel story. You know, Joseph didn't. That's why he has to have his own angel visit, just to convince him that what's happened to Mary is legitimate. I imagine most of that village had no time for Mary's little story about an angel that had visited her and now she's pregnant and isn't this fantastic. It, for the most part, this would have been a story just completely scandalous. In a tight-knit little Jewish village like that, you've got to think, this is going to be the talk of the town. You know, Today, millions of teenage girls get pregnant outside of marriage, and so we, we get, our senses are a bit dulled to it, but... In those days, you can't imagine how utterly embarrassing and shameful and degrading and scandalous this would have been in a little village. And it's telling that one of the first things, really the first thing that Mary does, when this angel comes to her and says, Mary, you're pregnant, she leaves town. First thing that she does in Luke's account, she takes off and travels a couple of hours south to go and visit her relative Elizabeth. And I don't think that's just, you know, to pay a friendly visit. I think part of it is that she's wanting to get out of that situation because she knows that as soon as she starts showing, it is going to be utterly scandalous. Just the stigma, the shame she would have brought in her family. It would have been pretty terrible. So she takes off. Having become pregnant, this angel's appeared to her. She's still trying to figure out what is going on. She's pondering these things in her heart. She doesn't really have too many ideas about how all this is going to work out. She doesn't have the Bible like we do. She can't look back and see how the story ends. She just knows she's suddenly become pregnant. She's a virgin. How on earth is this working? What's happening? The angel has made these exalted promises to her. She takes off and she visits her relative Elizabeth in Judea, in this region of Judea. And again, Elizabeth's really encouraging and uh, speaks these wonderful words. But even the contrast between Mary and Elizabeth highlights the problem of Mary's situation. You think about Elizabeth. She's also pregnant, miraculously, but she's pregnant through her husband. 
And so this is joyful. This is a cause for celebrating. As far as people are concerned, Elizabeth's this miracle, she's found favor with God. God's blessed her. He's healed her womb. This is wonderful. As far as people are concerned, Mary is this immoral woman who's become pregnant, sleeping with some other guy. We don't know how. She's spinning the story about an angel. It's frankly not that believable. So even as Mary and Elizabeth are relating, the contrast between those two people highlights some of the scandal that Mary's feeling. Elizabeth's whole pregnancy would have been marked by joy and, and, and just this wonderful answer to prayer that she's experienced. And Mary is just looking ahead at nine months of scandal and rumors and awkward glances and silences and people whispering behind her back. That's the kind of pregnancy that Mary had. That's the reality of what, what you're looking at in the Gospels. So she talks to Elizabeth and then you have this passage and if you've got a Bible, open it up here in Luke chapter 1. You have this passage when Mary, it's called Mary's song, but it's a little bit funny because when you read it through, Mary sings the song, and then Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, sings a song. The whole thing starts to feel a bit like an opera has just busted out here. It's like, what's going on? Did Mary just stand in Elizabeth's living room and suddenly just burst out into song? Uh, how does this work? And again, it's, it's a point at which we can really package up something that's really quite earthy. This song has become one of the great hymns of the church called the Magnificat, Mary's song. And it is, it's lofty and it's rich and it's theologically loaded and that's fantastic. But you can assume that this is Mary, meek and mild, Mother Mary, who really didn't have any problems of her own. And, and when, you, when you get into the world behind this song, what you realize is this is the nervous cry of an anxious teenage girl. And what she's really doing here is she's doing the only thing she knew how to do. Because what this song is, is a compilation of a whole lot of verses from the Old Testament. That's really all it is. If you've got a cross-reference Bible, you look down the margin, it just sends you everywhere for this passage because there's so many allusions to different... Uh, it's the Psalms, goes back to First uh, Samuel, even Genesis, and Mary is essentially, she's a product of her upbringing, and she is just reaching back into her Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and she's just drawing to mind passages that remind her of God's goodness and His faithfulness, something, anything that she can hold on to, anything that will comfort her. In this time, she doesn't really have it all figured out, and so she prays this prayer, she sings this song, and uh, maybe we just read it again. Lisa's sung it, and, and Diane's read it, but let's just read it and try and put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and what might be going through her mind as she's saying these words. Verse 46 of Luke 1, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I think with a hymn like this, the real force of it, you only see when you compare it to the alternatives of what Mary could have said and how she should have maybe responded, how you and I might have responded in this situation. I mean, here we go. What, what, what do you think Mary would say? The most likely reaction is something like, I don't want any part in this crazy plan. As soon as the angel turns up to her, I don't want this, find someone else, this is bizarre. Why should I suffer 
the shame and the indignity of this whole proposal when I've done nothing wrong. I mean, she was a good girl. She observed Torah, as far as we know, and, and was part of this Jewish community. Why is she suddenly being thrust into this scandalous situation? But she doesn't say any of that. Instead, she comes out with this incredible expression of praise and trust and confidence and, and worship, really, for God, exalting Him and, and lifting up His name. And you think, well, how is it that Mary's able to respond like this? In the middle of this situation, it's not a made-up fairy tale. A teenage girl really said these words in the house of a relative, in the middle of, of, a, of just a bizarre situation. How can Mary say these things? How can she say these words? I think part of the answer is that Mary is able to see what's happening in the context of the big picture. And even these verses that she plucks from the Psalms, from 1 Samuel, from, from the story that's gone before her, she's able to see a little bit of what's happening now is not just about this baby being born, it's not just about her pregnancy. It's not even just about this moment in time and, and the life of this child. This is something that sits within the whole flow of what God's been doing with His people from the very beginning. This sits within a storyline that's woven its way through the Old Testament and is now somehow encapsulating her as well, that she's been drawn into something that's much bigger than herself. And I think Mary's got enough insight to see she's somehow part of a story that's really transcending her. The story of God working in the world. And you can see this in, in, in some of the allusions that she makes in this, in this psalm, in this song. Look in verse 49, where she says, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. That verse is a verse straight out of Psalm 111. And in Psalm 111, you know what it's talking about? It's not talking about Mary. It's not talking about Jesus to come. It's talking about the Exodus. It's talking about that moment when God brought his people up out of slavery in Egypt and led them into the promised land. Now think about that. What did that involve when God did this incredible saving work with his people? He took a nation that wasn't a nation, a people that wasn't a people, just this of all the nations he could have chosen. You know, Babylonia, Egypt itself, the Egyptian dynasty, one of the great most powerful nations on earth. He bypassed all that. And he took this little slave tribe that wasn't even a properly constituted nation and he said, you, I'm going to raise up this people for my very own possession, and he drew them out of slavery and put them, settled them in their own land and filled them with good things and gave them a bounty of land and harvest and all of these riches. And you think, well, hang on. What Mary's saying is exactly what God has already done right back in the very beginning with the nation of Israel. Can you hear in the background to this song the Exodus story? And that way in which God, that's what God did back then. He lifted up the humble. That was Israel. He filled them with good things. He took them out of a, a situation of slavery and planted them in their, own, in their own country, in their own land. He was mindful of the humble state of his servant Israel. What's happening to Mary is simply a repetition of what God has already done with his people through history. This is the way God has already shown himself to work in the life of the people group that Mary's a part of. A lot of people have noticed in this hymn a similarity between this song and the song that Hannah sings. Hannah was the mother of the prophet Samuel, back in 1 Samuel. And uh, she was barren, she couldn't have kids, and her uh, husband had two wives, which is a problem in itself, we won't go there today, but he had these, this two-wife situation going on. And the other wife could have children. And because of this, she just mocked Hannah and gave a really hard time and abused her, and so Hannah was just distraught and devastated. She prayed to God, and eventually God did answer her prayer and enabled her to conceive. And Hannah prayed this incredible prayer as well. And a lot of that prayer that she prays now becomes the impetus for Mary to pray her own prayer. 
her own miracle story. And she again looks back to Hannah's situation and says, what God did back then, he's doing. In a different way, because it was different with Mary. But God's repeating. I think Mary's seeing a pattern in the way that God has always worked. And, and incidentally, it's, it's interesting, you, you look back through the scriptures and the amount of times that God would use a woman who was barren to bring about his purposes. Huge amount of the time in Genesis this happened with Sarah, with Rebecca, with Rachel, now with Hannah, then with Elizabeth. And Mary, of course, is unique because that was the direct miracle. Even without a husband of, of any kind, she, is, she conceives this child. But God constantly, it's the God who loves to stack the odds against himself and just bust them down and say, I'm going to do this anyway. God has this habit somehow of siding with the underdog. God has this bias in the way that he treats people towards the lowly, towards the humble. He is the God of the outcasts, the God of the neglected and the forgotten and the, and the ones who dwell, dwell on the fringe. And constantly in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to us as the God of the orphan and the fatherless and the stranger and the foreigner and the widow. And God is just always moving. The heart of the Father is moving towards those on the margins, not those in the mainstream, not those already sorted, but those who are lost, those who are broken, those who are humble, those who are lowly. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if Mary has already had enough insight to see that is how God worked. And now he's doing it again. And you can almost imagine Mary coming to this conclusion and saying this in one way seems really bizarre, but in another way, this is so God. This is so the way you'd expect God to work. And in Mary's own life now, this pattern is being repeated that God is reaching down and touching the humble and the lowly, bypassing all the normal avenues of fame and power and wealth and prestige and reaching down and connecting with someone who is on the margins, very ordinary, very average, and lifting them up and choosing them and, and fulfilling his purposes through them. And Mary's just carrying this on. And the incredible thing is that the greatest irony about this whole passage of Scripture is one that Mary at this point doesn't even realize. She's not even aware of it yet because here, here is just the sublime irony of this passage. As Mary is praying these words, think about this. Mary is praying these words which just exalt the name of God and lift up the glory and the majesty of who God is. And at that very moment that she's praying these words, God himself has already reduced himself down and down and down and down to take up residence in Mary's womb. As Mary is exalted, see the greatest miracle of a Christmas story is not the birth of Jesus. That was pretty scandalous, but the greatest miracle is, is the conception, the incarnation, the fact that God has reduced himself down, shrunk down and down and down and down and down to, to become a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the human eye. And then this divides and redivides and so on until a fetus takes shape. God became a fetus. That's what you're dealing with in the Christmas story. The, the mighty God, read these words, the mighty one of Israel, the one who scatters the proud and just scatters the humble and brings down rulers from their throne, the great untouchable, the ancient of days, the Lord of hosts, the one who encircles the earth, holds the nations in the palm of his hand. This God has in this moment become dependent on the nourishment of a teenage girl. It's incredible. The, the, the God who, who spoke the universe into being has become vulnerable and breakable. The God who exists only as spirit has become pierceable. The God who created everything is being created. The God who sustains everything is completely, at this moment, dependent. Think of how fragile God makes himself here. 
Think of how fragile he became. Completely dependent. Completely dependent. In this one moment, the kingdom of heaven arrives in the smallest and most silent of ways. Think of the line of that carol we sung before. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Not with great fanfare, but with God himself producing the ultimate climax to this story of siding with the underdog, siding with the humble, siding with the lowly, and now God himself brings it all together by becoming the humble, becoming the lowly, becoming the ultimate underdog. Paul would describe it later in Philippians as God emptying himself, kenosis, he completely empties of all that he is and becomes virtually nothing, the smallest, most fragile form of life ever imaginable. And this just carries on right through the Christmas story. When you step back from it, it is just the story of God constantly siding with the humble, constantly using the most lowly and, and, and atrocious circumstances. Jesus is born in this backwater town of Bethlehem. Nothing to do with the great cities of the day, Tiberias and Sephora. No mention of them. It's Bethlehem. Not in a palatial surrounding, but in, in a manger. And even that word, you know, we talk about manger. We really probably need to stop using it because it's become so dumbed down. It's like a cave. It's what you're talking about. It's a cave in the ground. It was dug into the, the, the bottom story of houses. It's where you keep your animals. It was just, you couldn't imagine anything more degrading for a child to be born. I mean, this would be, nobody would even contemplate giving birth in a cave today. It is just inhumane. And yet this is where the king of glory was born. Unbelievable. Born into scandal and all these rumors surrounding what really happened with Mary and Joseph and all this stuff. Spends the first few years of his life as a refugee in Egypt, hunted by Herod. Herod the Great. This is the kind of life that Jesus has, and the pattern just carries on and carries on and carries on. And when you see it, when you, when you identify this pattern of God siding with the humble, God always bypassing the expected route and coming in and using the unexpected, coming in and using the broken and the lowly, it just keeps cropping up. It just really helps to read the whole biblical story that way. You see it again on the cross. God just using a symbol of shame and degradation and the power of Rome and just completely subverting it and making it the power of freedom, a symbol of, of, of relief and liberation, a symbol of rescue from tyranny and all this sort of stuff. You see it in the proclamation of the gospel, the message of a crucified Messiah. Foolishness, and yet Paul says it's ultimate wisdom. Weakness, and yet it's ultimate strength. Shame, and yet it's ultimate honor. The whole thing has been turned around. This is the subversive power of the gospel. It overturns everything that we would expect, bypasses all the normal channels through which we would think God, if he was any kind of dignified God, would work, and he sides with the humble, and he is the God of the downcast, and the broken, and the lowly. It's happening with Mary, and it's happening today. You know, think about Christmas, and if, if God is unchanging, if this is his nature, if this is the way he works in the world, then how is it that he might be doing the same thing even now? How can Mary's song still be sung today? How might God still be working out this pattern of moving towards the humble and the lowly and the broken? I was talking with, with a guy last week from, from Shaw here about Christmas Day in his house and what this was going to mean, and he, he's going to be spending it with his extended family. And in that extended family, this year he has lost a nephew to meningitis really suddenly. And he was just sharing with the difficulty on Christmas Day of bringing that up. You know, how do you say? Because everyone's thinking about it, everyone's feeling it, and how do you give honor to that and give some expression to that without dragging everybody down? And we were just talking about the ways to do it. 
And it just reminded me, it's so easy for me to forget, I find that selfish streak. You, just, you can block out the fact that for some people that's, that's what Christmas is going to be, the, the challenge of how to deal with a whole lot of pain and still maintain some semblance of joy. There's a lot of people for whom this is the case. You know, there's, I know some of you in this room, you've lost a family member. Not even this year. But you come to times of the year like this and it's felt more, isn't it? Christmas brings that out more. And some people, for that very reason, can't stand Christmas. They don't look forward to it, not because they're stooges, but because they are just weary of the pain they know is, is going to be stirred up in their heart at this time of year. And it's so easy for the rest of us just to carry on oblivious to this, to carry on oblivious to the, to the humble and the broken. People that were in the kind of situation Mary was in, and, and we just carry on with our lives because we're all busy and we're all stretched and there's a million things to do this week before Christmas gets here and, and it's very easy for us to kind of live quite a self-absorbed type of Christmas. And I don't mean this is any kind of a guilt trip, but it is so healthy for us to try and be a little bit more mindful of those who are struggling away this Christmas. People who have lost someone, that empty chair syndrome when you're sitting around the Christmas table and the presence of a loved one is not there. And, and their em that emptiness, that void, just dealing with that is really, really hard. Some, some of you are feeling the pain of separation from a spouse. Maybe this is the first Christmas that you won't have your husband or wife with you. Perhaps you've, they've passed away. Perhaps it's divorce or separation. And just the pain of that, that gut-wrenching emptiness that that brings. Maybe the separation from friends and family. Maybe you're on the other side of the world from people that you would love to be spending Christmas with. And just being here makes it tough. And that distance is really, really felt. Maybe for some people it's the difficulty of not being able to afford the presents that you'd like to buy. Not being able to afford to put on the big meal that you'd like to be able to put on. We so often don't think about that on you know, nice middle class North Shore, but there are, are those for whom this is a real issue. And you think the way we celebrate Christmas is fantastic. We emphasize family. We emphasize friends. We emphasize the giving and receiving of gifts. That's, that's wonderful. But don't forget the way in which that can exclude some as well. That can actually work to push people to the margins. Those who don't have the family around them, don't, aren't surrounded by the friends, can't afford the great gifts. Those people find themselves on the fringe, on the outside looking in. And there's that sense of loss and brokenness that's really, really difficult. And I want to say firstly to those of you that are in that place, that are, that are finding yourself in a way in Mary's shoes this Christmas, feeling like you're on the fringe and maybe feeling grief, pain, loss, carrying some hurt this Christmas, I want to encourage you to let Mary's song lift you up. And spend some time, even over the next few days, just pouring over these verses and reminding yourself of the way that God, I believe, has a special concern for those who are humble and lowly and broken. And at this time of year, his heart has moved towards those people so much and he desires to lift them up. It doesn't mean God promises to reverse your situation. It doesn't mean he promises to take away that sense of loneliness that you may have, that sense of loss and grief. But God is the God who works even in the midst of those difficult situations to just subvert our expectations, to lift us up, to provide that peace that the Bible talks about that transcends all understanding, that peace that God promises to guard our heart and our mind with at Christmas time. God so longs to just draw near to you. And I would encourage you not to move away from him, not to let that bitterness become a wedge in your relationship with God, but to allow it to be something that draws you near to him this Christmas, that you would press in and allow him to provide that companionship, him to provide that love, him to provide that, that closeness that you need and just for him to walk with you one day at a time through this Christmas season. Just the next step and then the next step and the next step. And for many of us, I think the challenge is being a little bit more aware of those around us who are hurting. Doing exactly what Mary expresses here. 
being, being aware, being mindful of the humble state of people around us. Might be someone sitting right next to you right now who is really broken. And man, we are experts at covering this stuff up. We are experts at walking into church on Sundays and good uh, smiles and grins and we can do small talk really well. But underneath, even this morning, I'm guessing there, there is some brokenness and some hurt and some people really struggling. This is not to bring us all down, but it's to be real. And we need to be real at Christmas time. There's no point being fakey about it. It's, it's acknowledging we're, we're the body together and in our broader community there are people really struggling. And just for us to allow ourselves to look around a little bit more, maybe someone you know, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, that you can just move in on a little bit this Christmas and be what Mary expresses, be that one who would maybe lift up the humble a little bit, fill the hungry with good things, maybe not physically giving food or whatever. And I'm not talking about having to have 50 people around your place for Christmas Day. You, know, not necessarily, you might want to. But not necessarily. It may just be the simplest thing, you know, just a word of encouragement, just speaking life into someone that is really feeling broken this Christmas, maybe just sending a Christmas card, maybe just a hug. You'd be surprised how far that can go. And we are God's hands and feet. God is desiring to lift up the humble. He's desiring to fill the hungry with good things. But he doesn't always just move in and zap people. He uses those of us who are willing to go and actually be his instruments in lifting others up, speaking life, giving hope, lifting out of, restoring dignity. This is what God's wanting to do. And, and, and I challenge myself as well as I challenge all of us to just be mindful of that and to be open. God, even as we go into this next week, the red zone, you know, before Christmas, just use me. Just make me aware. Opportunities, people that might come along that I could touch, that I could minister to, that I could somehow capture the spirit of Mary's song. You know, we fight so hard. Christians fight so hard to try, you know, with this whole debate about the secularization of Christmas and, you know, you want Christ and Christmas, Jesus is the reason for the season, and all those debates, I'm not really sure that's where it's at. To try and just fight for the maintenance of religious expression at Christmas time, these kinds of things. I think our primary focus should be living out the essence of Mary's song, actually living out the Christmas story. I think that would be a far greater testimony to the world. I think it would be a far greater expression of what Jesus himself came to do to lift up the broken heal the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, that kind of stuff. What if we just decided that we'd practice this and we would be the church and we'd be there for each other? We'd start here, the body of Christ, and then we'd move more broadly. I think that would be ultimately the greatest witness to a needy world this Christmas time.